my name is Shamila, and this is my story of grace. I'm a junior at Texas A&M. I grew up Buddhist in a Buddhist family. My parents grew up in Sri Lanka and moved to the States to, to get their higher education degrees. I grew up in that way, going to temple regularly, and then I came to A&M. I hadn't ever spoken about Buddhism to anyone. I just um, had a lot of questions about the pain I saw in the world. I, I, I realized that if there was a God, I couldn't imagine us being a proper representation of Him with our selfishness and our pride and the way we hurt others um, and the way we are hurt. That's where I was when I was walking on campus one day and I saw a Gideon man who was handing out New Testaments. I remember, I actually remember this, putting it immediately in my pocket because I didn't want anyone to see that I had taken it. I just went back to my dorm room and started reading Matthew and that's when I learned about Jesus and just what his purpose was and the solution to all these problems I had seen and like what it was called, which is sin. I have found through these past 14 months that just to know him and to, to get to experience these characteristics of himself that could be found perhaps in slivers in a human being, but in him are so just full and deep and are accessible to me at any time that I, since I know him and I can pray to him. I felt his comfort in multiple ways, I would say. He's really comforted me through his word and through Grace, um, the community here. I love Grace College. I love going there and I love sermons and the people. I've been blessed in the comfort he's provided. When I think about it, my first thought would be how he's completely changed my life. I never thought I would be a Christian. Like I never, it was, I was very detached to that idea growing up. It's crazy to think that I attend church and love reading the Bible and just know him and pray. And there's so many things I just never thought would happen. Once again, my name's Chimela and I've experienced grace. If you'll bow with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for stories like Jamila's. Thank you that you are a God who saves. Lord, we praise you and thank you that she found peace and comfort, hope, meaning, and significance through the good news of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. And Father, we thank you that we have found the same, that you offer that to all of us, Lord. You are so good to us. Thank you so much for the life that we have in Jesus. And this morning as we celebrate what he has done, both in death and, and in resurrection, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be grateful. We pray that as we enter back into your word now, Lord, that you would give us grateful hearts, that your spirit would fill us, that he would draw us close to you, Lord. Give us eyes to see this morning. And Lord, I especially pray for any who are here who, who have not yet received this great gift that Chamilla has spoken of, Lord, please open their eyes. Help them to see it, Lord. Help them to see how good it is. We pray, Father, that you would be honored and exalted in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I was preparing this week, I came across a fable, a, a legend that's told of a, of a powerful but impatient king who ruled many, many years ago. And one day, out of an effort to better understand his kingdom, he gathered together his army of economic advisors. And he challenged them to go summarize all of economics in as few words as possible. So, like 
typical economists. They returned with 87 volumes of 600 pages each. And, and our impatient king, who is not pleased by that, so he put half of them to death on the spot, executes half of them. He challenges the, the, the remaining, the surviving half, go off and try again. So they return with a, a little shorter summary. Still, he's not pleased. He executes another half. And, and that cycle continues until there's just one economist left. He has given one last attempt to summarize all of economics in as few words as possible. And he says, sire, in eight words, I will reveal to you all the wisdom that I have distilled through all these years from all the writings of all the economists who once practiced their sciences in your kingdom. Here it is. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. That's economics in one phrase. Summary of the whole theory of economics. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. In this world, you don't get something for nothing. If you want something of value, you will pay for it. You may not pay with money, but you will pay in one way or another. Now, I saw that truth illustrated when I was in high school. My family took a a trip to Orlando, Florida, and we really wanted to go to Universal Studios, but we didn't have the money to afford it. But my parents found this great offer. You could get tickets for free for your whole family to Universal Studios, but there was some fine print. There was a catch. You had to go listen to a short presentation on timeshare condos. Now, for those of you who have ever listened to a short presentation on timeshare condos, you know there's nothing short about it. My parents were captives in this high-pressure sales meeting for hours. It was awful. They got those tickets not for money, but but for time and for emotional energy. There was nothing free about that offer. In this world, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. You don't get something for nothing. But then we get to Isaiah 55. Go ahead and turn there now, Isaiah 55. Now, for those of you who have been with us as we have marched through the book of Isaiah, you know that our study of Isaiah began with with really depressing stuff. All in all, really, the first few weeks was all about our sin and rebellion and foolishness and God's judgment and his eternal wrath. It was all really bad news at the first half of Isaiah. But then chapter 40, it takes a turn and it begins to walk into good news. And the culmination of that good news is our chapter this morning, chapter 55. It is God's great offer to the human race, the the great gift that God wants to give. That's the subject of our passage this morning. Look with me starting in verse 1 of chapter 55. These are the words of the Lord. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Okay, so, so God is offering something, water, wine, milk, whatever those represent. He is offering these as a gift for free. He's offering them to those who have no money. It's, it's a free gift. But, but is it really free? Or is it free like that condo sales pitch in Florida? What does God mean by free? Well, to answer that question, we've got to look at the fine print. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the fine print in this passage, and we're going to see how this passage plays out in the rest of Scripture. What is God's offer really about? To, to answer that question, we're actually going to look at four questions. We're going to ask four questions of God's offer. The first question, most obvious one, what exactly is God offering us in this passage? What is this offer that God presents? It's described right at the beginning as water. 
Why is it called water? Well, water's a pretty important thing. Water's indispensable for life. If you don't have water, well, your, your lawn dies and then your crops die and your livestock dies and eventually you die. You, you can't live without water. Now, now, that was really important in the ancient world. In, in the Middle East of biblical times, uh, water was a precious commodity. If a drought came upon the land, there was no well to, to pump water out of. If a drought came, people died. It was a serious thing. Now, we have a, a little inkling of that. I don't know if you know, but it's one of the first times in recorded history the entire state of Texas is in a drought right now. Here in Bryan College Station, we are under the worst drought classification possible. saw a couple days ago, Governor Perry actually called on the entire state to pray for rain. I don't ever remember that happening. Well, he's, he's doing that because water's a serious thing. Water is indispensable for life. And that's why God chooses it for this metaphor in verse 1. God is really not offering literal water in this verse. As important as literal water is, he's offering something far more important. Isaiah spoke of this actually back in chapter 44. He helped us understand what water represents. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. This water that God offers is the Holy Spirit. That's a common analogy in scripture. The Holy Spirit is like water, literal water. It gives your body life. It gives you physical refreshment, physical strength. Well, the Holy Spirit does the same thing spiritually. The Holy Spirit gives you spiritual strength. He makes you spiritually alive. That's why God makes this connection. Jesus himself makes the same connection, the same offer in John chapter 4. He's, he's sitting at a well with a Samaritan woman. And he asks her for literal water and he offers her something far better in exchange. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. For whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Living water, that is the Holy Spirit. When you partake of the Holy Spirit, you receive eternal life. That is life that never ends. Eternal life is life without end. It means that when you die, you don't really stop living. You continue to live forever. And and Isaiah gives us a description of what this eternal life is like, actually, in the rest of verse 1. Look back at that. He says, come by wine and milk. That's an odd thing to talk about. Come by wine and milk. Well, in the ancient world, wine and milk were symbols of, of richness, of fatness, of abundance, of extravagance. God's point here is he's, he's not offering you a meal. He's offering you a feast. He, he's offering you the best of his provisions. You're sitting down at the table and it's not just a glass of water in front of you. You got wine and milk. You got the best that the ancient world had to offer. In other words, this gift of eternal life is, is abundant life. That's what the Bible means by eternal life. It's a life of spiritual abundance. A life that is full of God's joy and peace and love and satisfaction now and for all eternity. It is life that completely, perfectly satisfies you forever. That's what God's offering. Now, that's not too shabby a gift. (laughs) It's actually the greatest gift ever offered to the human race, completely satisfying life forever. We'd like some of that. That sounds really good to us. That's a great gift that God is offering. But now the second question... uh, who is God offering this gift to? Now, among human beings, among us, here's how we think. If, if I have an extravagant gift to give, who am I going to give that to? I'm going to give it to someone deserving. 
I'm going to give it to someone who's done me a favor or maybe someone who's close to me, someone in my family or someone that I want to impress or to get something back from in the future. You don't give your best gifts to any old guy on the street. Give them to someone who is deserving. How about God? Who does he give his greatest gifts to? Well, look back at verse 1. Who does God offer this gift to? To everyone who thirsts and to you who have no money. What God is saying here is he's offering this gift in exactly the opposite way that we would. God offers it to those who are absolutely not deserving. In the metaphor of verse 1, those who thirst, those who are spiritually deficient, they have nothing to offer God. Those with no money, they have nothing to put on the table before God, nothing to give him in exchange for his gift of eternal life. Uh, That's actually a really good way to describe the human race. I want to take you back. A few weeks ago, we talked about this, about the human race by nature. What are we like? From birth, Paul says that all human beings, we were born dead in trespasses and sins. All human beings from birth, we're born spiritually dead. We're born slaves of sin. We're born completely unable to please God. That led Paul to summarize it this way in Romans chapter 3. You saw this a few weeks ago. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. In other words, when the human race comes to God, we bring nothing to the table. We have nothing to offer God that he wants. We have nothing to give him in exchange for his gift of eternal life. But there's good news. That makes us exactly in the middle of God's target audience. As he's looking for people to give this gift of eternal life to, he's looking for sinners like us. That's who he offers his gift to. He reserves the greatest gift in all of human history for sinners like us. For those who don't deserve it, for those who have nothing to give him in return, that's who he wants to give this gift to, to human beings. So so God is offering eternal life, eternally satisfying life, the greatest gift in all of human history. He's offering it to all people, even though he knows we don't deserve it, and we can never pay it back, and we can't give him anything in return. That's what he's offering. But now let's get down to brass tacks. How free is this gift? What does this gift really cost? You see, if you want to get something of incredible value, you don't get it for free. You never do. Things that are great always come at a great cost. So what's the cost of this gift? How can Isaiah say that it's free? Well, look back at verse 1. Look back at verse 1. Everyone who thirsts come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Do you notice the paradox there? God just admitted, he knows we have no money, but then he tells us to come buy. By the definition of the word buy, you are receiving something by paying a price. There's a paradox here. God knows we have no money, but he tells us to come buy something at a price. How can that be? How can you receive something without money? Okay, well, Isaiah is taking us back to chapter 53. Turn back a couple pages in your Bible, chapter 53, verse 5. This is what we looked at last week. Isaiah says of Jesus, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Isaiah's point here is that the price for our well-being, our peace with God and one another, the the price for our spiritual healing, it was Jesus' affliction and death. Peter brings up that same point. Here's how Peter puts it in the book of 1 Peter. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This gift of eternal life, the greatest gift in all of human history, it's free for us, it was not free for God. It costs the receiver nothing, it costs the giver greatly, it costs God the life of his own son. The price for us to have eternal life, to live with God forever, was the blood and body of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about this in the previous weeks. Human beings, we have sinned. God is is a perfectly just ruler. He's a perfectly just judge of heaven and earth. He must render a just verdict upon sin. And the just verdict upon sin is wrath. It's God's eternal punishment. That is what our sin deserves. We deserve from God not eternal life, but eternal wrath. And there's nothing that we can do to change that reality. Remember, we have no money. We have nothing to offer God. We cannot bribe our way out of his wrath. We cannot buy eternal life and forgiveness for ourselves. So Jesus bought it for us. As a sacrifice, as a perfect lamb, he offered his own body, his own blood on the cross as payment for us. That was the price of eternal life. As you look at this gift that God is offering, the price tag on it, it's massive. You can't even read the number on it. It is so costly to provide us with eternal life, but it's not us paying the price. It's Jesus. He willingly paid the price for us. Paul put it this way. I want to take you back to Romans 3. I know we studied this a few weeks ago. Again, this is, I think, the clearest statement in Scripture of how eternal life, how this gift works. Paul says, For all have sinned, that's all of us, and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Let me point out a few things here. Justification and redemption. That's just another way to describe eternal life. Justification is God's declaration that you're right with him. That you are forgiven, that you are eternally righteous in his sight. Redemption, that is freedom or emancipation from sin and from slavery to death. God is offering us justification and redemption. How do, how do they come to us? How is this offer paid for? Well, in Christ Jesus. It's in Jesus' body, in Jesus' blood that the cost has been paid for this incredibly valuable gift. Now the gift comes to us how? Well, it comes to us as a gift by his grace. This gift of eternal life. It comes as a free gift. It comes by God's grace. The definition of grace is that you receive something good that you don't deserve. That's what grace means. To get something good that you don't deserve. God offers as a gift eternal life. Justification and redemption through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And all that we have to do to to receive that incredible gift of grace is, is simply receive it, simply believe, simply trust that God's offering it to us. Here's how Jesus put it in John chapter 7. Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He's using the language of Isaiah here. If you want this gift of living water, eternally satisfying, abundant life with God, now and forever, all you must do is believe in Jesus. Believe that Jesus is who he said he was. Believe that Jesus did what he said he did. Believe that Jesus is is the son of God and that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. That's how Paul summarizes it. Here's what we must believe about Jesus. Shortest summary you'll find in scripture of the gospel. The good news about Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. If you believe this, that Jesus, the Son of God, died for our sins, was buried and rose from the dead, then you have eternal life. Eternal life comes simply through faith. Now, to some people, that sounds just a little too good to be true. Sounds just a little too good to be true. I I remember uh, a few years ago, I was looking for a car. I'd made up my mind, I want a Honda Civic, and, and I set my budget and I began to look around. What, where could I find uh, the best car for the money? And I looked for a number of weeks, and I remember finding this classified ad for a Honda Civic for, the, for my budget. It was actually a- almost new, uh, had very few miles on it. It was really nice. I looked at the pictures online. It was beautiful. I was incredibly excited. I didn't think I could afford anywhere near that nice of a car. So I call and I set up a test drive. I'm, I'm really excited, but then I call my dad and he recommends, Blake, uh, go ahead, pay the 25 bucks to do a title check. I, I'm glad I did. It turns out that car lived through Hurricane Katrina. It had been flooded in the hurricane. Some very corrupt person had gone and taken it out of the junkyard, cleaned it up a bit, and was trying to hawk it off as new. Prove to me once again, in this world, if it sounds too good to be true, it almost surely is. That's what people think when they hear the good news of eternal life. You're telling me that God is going to give you Eternal life, satisfying life, joy, peace, patience, love, all of that stuff forever. And all you have to do is just receive it. Just believe that he's giving it to you. That sounds fishy. Sounds like it's too good to be true. So we begin to attach strings to the offer. For some people, they attach strings to the front end of the offer. This offer sounds good to be true, so, so they attach a string to the front end. They say, okay, faith. Well, yeah, you've got to have faith to get eternal life, but faith isn't quite enough. You've you got to work for it, too. It's mostly by faith, but, but a little bit by works. You've got to turn from all the sins you've been committing, quit committing any of those, and you, you have to dedicate your life to Jesus and promise to obey him in every way. Then you can be saved. That's what I I heard articulated by a Mormon missionary one day. He he came and we talked, and and here's how he explains salvation according to Mormonism. It's it's like when you were a a little kid, and and you were walking uh, by a shop window, and you look in the window, and you see this shiny, beautiful new bike. And it's exactly what you want. You desperately want that bike, but you see a tag on it. It says that it's, it's $100. So you run home, and you smash open your piggy bank, and you look inside, and you find $1. That's all you have. You got $1. That's all your money in the world. You're you're nowhere close to affording that bike. So in sadness, you go to your dad. You say, Dad, I I desperately, I want that bike. All I have is a dollar. What can we do? And your dad says to you, because I love you so much, I'm going to take your $1. I'm going to take all you have. I'm going to add the other 99 and we're going to go buy that bike. Is that how salvation works? Well, we have a very significant verse from Paul about this. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. 
Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. What Paul is doing in these verses is drawing a black and white distinction between grace and works. Grace and works, they do not mix. By definition, they cannot mix. And Paul is saying salvation, that comes entirely by grace. No works are involved. Salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. You don't work for it at all. Why? Because if you worked for it even a little bit, then you would have room to boast before God. God doesn't want you boasting before him. So he doesn't take your dollar. He doesn't take any works from you. So that that bike analogy, is it correct? Absolutely not. Salvation isn't 99% God and 1% me. It's not 99.99999% God and a tiny little bit me. It's not me at all. Salvation is completely God. Salvation is the words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. What did Jesus mean? I paid the whole price. You don't have to give me your dollar. I don't need it. I paid the entire price of your salvation. Eternal life is an absolutely free gift. I don't want you trying to work for it. Eternal life really is an absolutely free gift. It's given by grace alone, through faith alone. No strings attached to the front end. Okay, now, now for other people, they, they, they understand that. Okay, so salvation, eternal life, it comes to us through faith alone. I, 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 I understand that, but they add strings to the back end. They add catches in the fine print. Okay, salvation, it comes by faith alone, but then you have to live a life of good works if you want to keep it. If you don't live a life of good works, if you don't follow faith with good works, then you forfeit your salvation. You you lose it. Is is that correct? Well, we come across a passage again from Paul, Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, answering, I think, that question, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Really key phrase there, any other created thing. Because that's you and that's me. We're created things. And Paul's point is this, this gift of eternal life that God is giving us through Jesus Christ. There is nothing that we as created beings could do to lose it. There's nothing bad we could do. There's no failure of good works we could perform. It's not in our hands. Salvation was never in our hands. It's entirely in God's hands. There's nothing that we as created beings can do to change our salvation one iota. You can't forfeit it. It's not yours to give up. It's in God's hands, not yours. So a lack of good works for the rest of your life, it does not mean that you would forfeit salvation. Okay? Other people, they, they attach a similar string. They word it a little differently. Okay, Salvation comes by faith alone. But if you don't follow up faith with good works, you prove that you were a never a believer to begin with. You prove that your faith was a lie. You prove that you never had eternal life to begin with. Is that true? Well, again, looking at Paul, 1 Corinthians. Paul talks about believers standing before Jesus Christ for judgment. And here's how he describes that day when we stand before Jesus. The the fire of Christ's judgment will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. 
Paul's point here is he's looking at two believers. One believer who who follows faith with good works. He lives his whole life for Jesus Christ. As a result, when he stands before Jesus, Jesus joyfully gives him eternal reward to enjoy. Now, we don't know exactly what that reward is going to be. The Bible is clear. It's going to be awesome, whatever it is. But, But that's what he gets, eternal reward. The second guy, a believer, stands before Jesus and has no works to show. He has wasted his life. He did not live for Jesus Christ. As a result, what happens to him? He is saved, yet as through fire. It pictures a guy running out of a burning house. He takes no reward with him to heaven, but he's there. All he's got is the singed clothes on his back, but he's there. He does not lose his salvation. He does not prove that he never had salvation to begin with. Now, Paul's point in this passage is not to diminish the importance of good works, Paul wants us to know, the whole Bible wants us to know, good works were designed by God for you. God is calling you to live a life of good works. God expects you to live a life of good works. If you're a believer and you are not living a life of good works, loving God, loving other people, serving other people, to be completely honest with you, you're being a fool because you are trading the reward and joy that God wants to give you for the pain and emptiness of sin. So Paul's point here is not to diss good works. He, he loves good works. Paul's point here is to help us understand in crystal clarity, with God, free means free. When God says free, he means it's free. When God says free, he means no strings are attached, not now, not ever. If you believe you have eternal life, no matter what you do for the rest of your life, it is your gift. That's what grace means. God is not like those condo salesmen in Florida. There's no catch. There's no fine print. When God says the gift is free, he means it is absolutely, eternally free. All you have to do is simply take it, simply receive it. Now, with that in mind, we're led to the fourth and final question. If God is offering this incredible gift of eternal life to all human beings as an absolutely free gift, what would make you say no? Why would you say no to the greatest gift in all of human history? God himself actually asks you that question. Look back at Isaiah 55. In verse 2, God asks us this exact question. In verse 2, these are the words of God. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? This, this bread that does not satisfy. That's God's way of describing every other thing that human beings turn to to find satisfaction in life. Every other option other than Jesus that human beings look to to find life, to find meaning, to find significance and satisfaction, all of them in God's eyes are bread that does not satisfy. That includes every secular option, Uh, money, fame, career, prestige, all of these things that our world turns to. God wants us to understand if you are looking to those to provide you with deep, lasting, meaning, satisfaction, you will be disappointed. It also includes every other religion. Every other religion uh, at the end of the day will leave you unsatisfied. Now, God is unapologetic in saying that. God wants us to know Jesus is not one of many ways to come to God. Jesus is the only way. Every other religion is a dead end. Many years ago, um, there was a British conference on comparative religions, and a number of experts were gathered together, and, and they were debating what belief is absolutely unique to Christianity. 
What of the things that we believe is absolutely unique to our faith? Well, they started eliminating possibilities. What about incarnation? God taking on human flesh. Well, no, there's multiple religions that talk about God's coming to earth in human flesh. Okay, Uh, what about resurrection? Well, no, lots of other religions talk about people rising from the dead. So they debated for for a long period of time and then in walks C.S. Lewis. And he asks, what's all the rumpus about? And they explain, well, we're trying to figure out what is the unique contribution of Christianity to world religions. And C.S. Lewis says, that's easy. It's grace. Grace says that God offers his love for all eternity as a free gift. That that idea that God offers as a free gift that you don't work for, that runs against every fiber of our human nature. It also runs contrary to every other religion. The Buddhist eightfold path, Hinduism, karma, uh, Muslims and Islam, uh, the works of the law, all of these teach that what God is offering you is the opportunity to earn your way to him. Christianity alone says God offers his love as a gift, an unconditional gift by grace. You don't work for it. He simply gives it to you. Only Christianity offers grace. That's what Shamila discovered. That's why we showed that testimony video this morning. Shamila grew up a Buddhist. She went to Buddhist temple over and over again. She did it regularly. And yet in Buddhism, she found no answer to the pain and suffering and selfishness of life. And then she found Jesus. And in Jesus, she found joy and peace. She found satisfaction for all eternity. Shamila understood only in Jesus can you find life. Jesus offers that same gift to everyone in this room this morning. It's interesting, right at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, John is standing in heaven, he's standing in front of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ says, through John, to all of us, to all people alive today, said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Right now. Jesus is offering to all human beings the free gift of eternal life without cost. It's really free. No strings attached. You simply need to receive it in faith. My prayer for all of you who are here this morning is that if you have not received that incredible gift that God is offering, that you'd realize today's the day. What a perfect day. Easter Sunday. When we gather and celebrate the victory of Jesus' resurrection, this is the day to come to the Lord. Later in Isaiah 55, Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. God is inviting you to seek him. God is not hiding himself from you. God wants to be found by you today. He wants you to come to him and simply receive the greatest gift, the greatest offer ever made to the human race. Complete forgiveness, justification, redemption, eternal life, eternally abundant, satisfying life, All you have to do is receive it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And first and foremost, God, we thank you that you are not like us. We thank you that when you say that something's free, you mean it's free. And we thank you that you have reserved this greatest gift in all of human history, not for those who deserve it, but for us who don't deserve it. Thank you, God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you that you have made grace possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son. Thank you, Lord, that you paid this price so that we could be with you for all eternity. You paid that infinite price by giving your own son. 
Now, Father, right now, we come before you and we pray for anyone in this room, Lord, who hasn't yet received this incredible gift. Please, Lord, let this morning be the time of salvation for them, Lord. Please help them to understand that you are right now offering them the greatest gift in all of human history. And I pray, Lord, if anything is holding them back, maybe uh, intellectual objections, Lord, or something in their past, or they, they just don't feel like it could really be that free, Lord, I pray that whatever's holding them back, that you would remove that. I pray that you would even help them to talk to someone this morning to, to help answer that objection, Lord. I pray that you would do whatever it takes to open their eyes to the incredible news of what Jesus has done for us. And for those of us who have received that gift, Lord, we pray, please help us to be thankful people. Please help us to not take this thing for granted, Lord. Please open our eyes with fresh appreciation to see the incredible gift that you have given us through the death and resurrection of your son. And we pray, Lord, that we would be excited about it, that we would go tell people about it, that we would be vocal about our belief in Jesus on this Easter Sunday. Thank you so much for what we get to celebrate this morning, that through resurrection you have guaranteed our eternal life. Thank you for that. In the name of your son we pray, amen. I pray that you have a joyous Easter. God bless you guys and see you next week.